0: Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with us as we gather around your word. Open our eyes and help us to see your presence with us. Open our ears to help us to hear your voice speaking to us. Make us aware of just how loved we are. May my words be gospel, good news. In our ears. In Jesus' name. Amen. Michelangelo's statue of David in Florence is one of, if not the most famous statues in the world. It's a thing of beauty. It's 17 feet tall. It weighs almost five and a half tons. And yet it's made out of one single block of marble. And when it was made, it took 40 men four days to move it from the studio to where it stood originally. Even though the distance it travelled in that time was only half a mile. But there's actually a few odd things about it. One is that it did not look as those who had originally commissioned it had planned it to look it was far more normal in those days for david to be depicted at his moment of triumph over goliath with a big sword in his hand and the giant's head at his feet donatello had a statue of David, that was pretty much like that, and that was how David tended to be portrayed. Michelangelo broke the mould by portraying, portraying him as a youth before the battle. But also, the other thing about it was that he wasn't the first person to work on this block of marble. Agostino di Duccio, Antonio Rossellino, and Donatello had all worked on it. But had given up on the block, considering it of poor quality and too brittle to be of any use. But in 1501, Michelangelo accepted the commission and worked for two years on it. And what we see today actually bears the marks of those previous attempts. There were some aspects of Michelangelo's figure that he basically had to take given, mostly in and around this kind of the spread of the legs, although there's an indentation in one of the shoulders that was kind of there from when somebody worked on it previously. So he just built that into his work. And to a certain extent, even his different choice of pose was in part driven by things over which he had little control. If he had gone for the more active pose that sort of donatello for example had used they were right it wouldn't have been much use it would have actually threatened the stability of the statue and that was one of the reasons why others gave up on it but michelangelo looked on that block and he saw it entirely differently and in his imagination he saw a way he could make this work. and he chipped away at the previously considered useless marble until he created a thing of beauty. Imagination is one of the most precious gifts God has given us as humans, it drives us forward. Look around you, everything you see existed in someone's imagination. Before it became a reality. Progress. Is driven. By two words more than anything else. What if. Entrepreneurs. See the potential in an idea and said. What if someone made that. And it makes them rich. Social activists say, What if we just didn't accept that the world has to be like this? And work away at making it different, even when they face opposition to make it a reality. Architects take a derelict post office site and see a library homes a community square and win an award for it okay like all those gifts we can use our imagination for good or we can use it for bad I mean, I remember years ago, just before I went to university, the last job I had for the summer before I went to university was working in some council sports fields. Uh, I was looking after some football grounds and crickets and bowls, teams, and they wanted to use the ground and making certain they paid for what they used. There were a bunch of kids in that area who, and I say this in Christian love, could be a real pain in the backside and i used to think that if they had put half the imaginative effort into doing something constructive that they put into trying to work out ways of breaking into the bull's pavilion they'd have been geniuses but more seriously people can use their imaginations for quite horrific ends. we see it in how people are treated and more Down through the years, we have dreamt up ever more effective and impersonal ways of killing others. Crucifixion was an idea which existed in someone's imagination before someone actually did it. So imagination can be used for good or for bad. But the fact that we can take a good gift and use it for destructive ends does not stop it. Being a good gift. And when imagination dies, hope gives way to despair. When we stop being able to see alternative possibilities, we feel trapped and beaten. When a football team is a goal down and huffing and puffing but getting nowhere, the commentator will sometimes say, it looks like they've run out of ideas. They can't see a way back into the game. And that's where loss or lack of imagination can leave us. When we just can't see any way out or back from where we are now. When we can no longer picture a positive future. And that's what we find in the story of Mary and Cleopas on the road to Emmaus. This is a story which has quite a few characteristics of the Michelangelo-David story. A person not as expected, scars of what has gone before, despair, but a creative imagination, bringing hope and beauty out of a terrible situation. We don't know much about them. In fact, I call them Mary and Cleopas, but we are not even 100% sure that one of them was called Mary. Like, the only one, it only names, Luke only names Cleopas. But that character is often associated with a Clopass who's mentioned in John's Gospel who had a wife called Mary who was standing near the cross of Jesus when he died. And Mary was quite a common name and there are quite a few in the Gospels, particularly in the closing chapters. But it is actually possible that one of those two characters on the road to Emmaus was amongst the women who had gone to the tomb with the, of Jesus with the burial spices only to to, just to complete the burial rituals only to discover the empty tomb and there are some who would say that this story hints at a married couple and it maybe says more about them than the story maybe but they say it makes sense of the situation when they encounter jesus on the road luke tells us they were talking and discussing as they went along the road But the sense that we get is that it's more of a heated argument. That's why they think they're married. (laughs) That is that it's loud enough for a stranger to overhear and butt in to find out what they're talking about. And I'm quite happy to make it a man and a woman because all too easily when we read a story that says two disciples, people are tempted to just think of two men and forget that Jesus had female followers too. So It's as likely as any scenario, uh, 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 as as any other, really. And Luke offers us one piece of physical information about this couple. Their faces are downcast. Maybe maybe it was in their eyes. Maybe their mouth. Maybe their whole body posture was a bit slumped. Maybe they were kind of dragging themselves along the road to a man. And I kind of wonder, you know, maybe using my imagination a bit, but I wonder if maybe part of the reason they were having this heated discussion was that one of them had been to the empty tomb and that she had wanted to stay behind to find out what had happened because she had been one of the women at the tomb that morning. And she had been one of the ones that had been dismissed when she would told them she would had visions of angels telling them Jesus was alive. But unfortunately she was saddled with a guy who had been one of those who were dismissing the reports as an idle tale. And he said, well, well I'm going home. What, you, know, you can stay here if you want. And so she thought, well, oh, I'd better go with him then. That held such hopes. We don't know how long they had followed Jesus, how and when they got started. They don't really appear much else in the story. But the fact that they knew where to go to connect with the other disciples after they recognised the risen Christ suggests that they were part of that bigger group other than the 11 who were together as a a group of Jesus' followers. These were people who had seen the miracles. They'd heard the stories. They'd seen Jesus in action. They'd come to think that he just might be the one, the people that had been waiting for down through the centuries. The one that God had promised. But they didn't think that way anymore. Their hopes had been dashed. They speak about Jesus entirely in the past tense. Past tense. He was a prophet. He was a prophet. Mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. It was a tragedy he had been killed because they had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. You can almost hear a derisory snort in the voice as they reflect on how foolish that hope had been. All of us suffer disappointment in life. In the grand scheme of things, it might be quite minor. You didn't get that promotion. Your football team didn't win the cup. I didn't get to see the play upstart Crow because of COVID. But they can be larger and more crushing things. People you trusted. Let you down. Marriages break down. Health fails. You had big hope for that venture. And it fell apart. The company you worked so hard for. Had to let you go. You invested so much time and energy in something. Or someone. And it all went south. And we can start questioning everything. That life doesn't work out as we planned. And we might question our faith. We might even question God. If God cares about us and supposedly in control, why would this have happened? And we might find ourselves slowly, or maybe not so slowly, detaching from God, from faith. We start drifting down a road, away from where we need to be. That's what was happening with Mary and Cleopas. They were detaching themselves from the rest of the community. They were getting away from the scene that, where Jesus had died. And like so much of the un, of the hurt in our lives, it was a product of unmet expectations. But the problem with unmet expectations is that quite often the times those expectations were never going to be met and nobody had promised they were going to be there. Jesus had never said anything to give them the impression that anything different to what had happened would happen. Quite the opposite, in fact. They had a particular view of how the world worked, the way God worked, the way they understood their history, the way they read their scriptures. They'd come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed Savior and King. He's the one that had been promised down through the years by God. But they had a preconceived idea of what that looked like and how it would happen. And Jesus was going to actively, decisively Overthrow the Roman occupying power. He would set them free. He would get rid of that corrupt collaborative temple authorities. He would get rid of that puppet king Herod. Who, all those people that owed their possessions to Rome. He would make Israel great again. With a king like David on the throne. But all of that was just ripped apart by events the previous Friday. They'd seen him arrested tried, sentenced to death mocked, beaten bloodied, battered nailed to a cross facing the most painful and public humiliation the world had used its crooked, depraved imagination to think up so far it was as far far farther removed from expectations than Michelangelo's David had been as a statue If this was a block of marble, there was no way you could chip at this story and come up with anything other than humiliating defeat. And then a a stranger comes and meets him on the road. And he says, what are you talking about? And after initially expressing their surprise that the strangers seemed oblivious to events earlier that weekend, it all starts pouring out. And then the stranger responds, but in a surprising way. Because he sees their problem not as a crisis of faith, but a crisis of imagination. They were so blinkered by their perceptions and expectations, that they couldn't see what had been staring them in the face as they'd read all those years, and was now staring them in the face as they walked along the road to a mess. Three times in the last chapter of Luke we read pretty much the same words. first at the empty tomb in the words the angels speak to the women. they say this. I can get this to move. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then again, Jesus comes to the disciples in the upper room. He said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Or again, in between here on the road to Emmaus. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Well, clearly, they thought the answer to that last question was no. Even as Jesus had been telling them in ever more graphic language as they journeyed towards Jerusalem, but to them, the story of a Messiah suffering these things didn't make sense and then beginning with moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself i'm really annoyed at Mary and Cleopatra, you know. Why didn't they write that down? Wouldn't that have been just great to see sort of you know written down what Jesus had said to them on that road? That must have been the best Bible study ever, eh? And then slowly, almost imperceptibly at first, something begins to stir within them. Something of what the stranger said seemed to strike a chord. So much so that as they reached their destination and he made to go on, they invite him to stay. They want to give him a bit more time to sort of explain and unpack this. And then he broke the bread. And they recognised him. And he was gone. But it wasn't just A renewal of faith it was a change of perception a change of the filter through which they were reading the scriptures that restructured their imagination and they came to see that what they'd been missing before had been there all along that ultimately jesus came not to rescue them from suffering but to redeem them through his suffering and over the course of our new testament we see them work out their understanding of this over the next 60 70 years that god does his best and most impo- doesn't do his best and most important work through the great and the wise instead god chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise god chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong god takes the lowly and exalts them to the place of the powerful god's power is made perfect in weakness and that same truth that came to see is at work in us that to all intents and purposes we can find ourselves feeling as fragile and vulnerable and easily broken as jars of clay As Pete Gregg, the author of a couple of the prayer courses we have done, puts in. We spend most of our lives living in the Saturday between the Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Living with the struggles of life and waiting for the resurrection. We can be perplexed, we can struggle, we can feel battered and bruised. Perhaps even we get persecuted or slagged off sometimes. Maybe we can feel disappointment. Perhaps we feel forgotten. Those things we had hoped for might have just vanished. We can still feel raw with the hurt. We can be discouraged. We can be confused. We can be questioning. We can be ready to walk. And in there we can learn from the two on the road. Because they weren't frightened to express it. They let it all kite. See I'm all for reverence But not at the expense of honesty And I think a lot of the time We're frightened to express how we feel to, to God That we Maybe treat him More I think it was Jonathan Aitken used the image of God As the bank manager You know, you don't want to say anything going to annoy Him. But God knows our heart And he loves us all the same. He is bigger. Than we imagine. And he can take a lot more than you think. He's given us whole. Chunks of scripture. Which are people saying things. that You sort of think really. That's sacred. The one thing. God can't deal with. Is false politeness, dishonesty, unreality. But don't rush through it. Make space for God to linger. Invite him into the heart, the disappointment, the confusion, the question. Sometimes when I'm in spiritual direction sessions with people, I will, put a, I will put a third chair in the room and I will say to him, imagine Jesus is sat in that chair. What would you want to say to him? Be open to what he might say slowly perhaps almost imperceptibly at first something might begin to stir within you a burning of the heart a slow re-engagement and rekindling of the imagination a new perspective a flickering hope something might be possible even in the midst of all that hurts you. In his book Sacred Fire Ronald Rolheiser puts it like this, for all of us there will come times when everything that is precious to us religiously will get crucified and we will find ourselves discouraged, shattered religiously. This is not a crisis of faith but a crisis of the imagination but deeper maturity and a more faithful discipleship are found on the road to Emmaus. When discouraged in darkness and tempted, we allow ourselves to be restructured by a deeper vision of what God and Christ have done. It may not come as you expect it, any more than Michelangelo's statue was what those who commissioned it expected. It may look quite different. Don't despise that. And there is no need to run from the past. It matters. We may wonder how, given all that has gone before, that God can do anything with the mess. Because we're nothing but a vulnerable jar of clay. That's precisely where God chooses to place his greatest treasure. And at this time of the year, one of the features of the resurrection counts that always gives me hope is those ones where the risen Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. And he still bears the scars. Oh, they look the same. But in the light of resurrection they have a whole new meaning. We were never promised a way round or past the hurts of life. We were promised we would be held through it. It isn't easy. It can hurt as things we cherish, trusted, relied upon, chipped away. We worry if there's going to be anything left. But we're not alone. We're in the hands of someone way more skilled and with way greater imagination, even than a genius like Michelangelo. He is the one who has walked the road of suffering before us, who has paved the road to resurrection may we allow him into our stories may we walk with him may we listen to him may we invite him to linger with us may he reveal himself to us and may we find our imaginations re-engaged and restructured by one whose power can achieve way more than we can ever begin to imagine grace and peace be with you.